0: Welcome to any visitors who might be here. My wife and I would love to say hello to you. We have 164 here today, as perhaps Mr. Ames announced, and uh, so we're really holding up. Last week we had, of course, an all-time record attendance of 179, and now we're 15 less. I don't know who the bad guys are that left. We'll check up on them and... (laughs) We'll send Mr. Dylan King after them and frighten them. (laughs) Anyway, we we hope they're all okay, and some are sick, and some are gone for other reasons, I'm sure. We're grateful to have Mr. Wally Smith and his family here, and I really appreciate the job he and Mr. uh, Rod King do on the telecast. They're both very, very effective and add a great deal to the telecast, and uh, we're grateful to have younger men coming along because we certainly need that. Mr. Uh, James Hart gave a very fine sermonette, and I enjoyed his speaking, and seemed like he's gaining in depth. He's lost all of his hair, so he's getting more mature. <laughs> and I uh, know and these young men shave their hairs. I don't, anyway, They he, he may, maybe he was in the Marines out there. We first saw him out there. I don't know if he were in the Marines or not. But anyway, it was a very thoughtful sermonette. We had a very fine sermon, an unusually fine sermon, last week from Mr. Ames on mercy. And I want to follow through today with a kind of a complimentary sermon uh, along a similar line. Brethren, as many of you know, you older brethren, Mr. Armstrong, used to say that there are two kinds of people in the world, givers and getters. Some people give, and they give and give and give themselves in various ways, and others get and get. And of course, frankly, most of us are not totally one way or the other. It's good not to say it's all black or white. But often there is a tendency to be a giver or a tendency to be a getter even in unconverted people, and certainly even more so in converted people because you tend to have more givers uh, among you once people really have God's Spirit. So I wanted to, in thinking about this... uh, I don't want anybody to get to sentimental, but I guess as I get older, I get sentimental a little bit more. I think, well, this could be my last sermon. How can I help the church the most? So I tried to think last time and wanted to preach on faith because I know we've got to have the gifts of faith to have more healings in the church. And I certainly don't want you to forget that. But something is even more important in one sense because Jesus said through, well, through the Apostle Paul there in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, And now abides faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And so love is even greater than faith and greater than hope. And one aspect of love, of course, is this whole uh, aspect of giving. There are many facets of love, of course, that we can keep God's commandments. And the greatest law of all is to love God with all of your heart and mind and soul, all of your being. Worship God, adore God, Give your life to God. Do what God says. And then secondly, to love your neighbor as yourself. And one aspect of loving your neighbor as yourself, because unless you are mentally ill, as we have, of course, more mentally ill people today in our society, we know that. But basically, unless something is terribly wrong, most people do love themselves. And that's not wrong. You should love yourself in a right way and appreciate the gifts that God has given you and the life that God has given you and the opportunities that God has given you. But you're to love your neighbor as yourself. So you love yourself by brushing your teeth, combing your hair, providing for yourself in all these personal ways that you don't need to do for your neighbor. But on the other hand, as you think through how you can help your neighbor and love him as yourself, you want to think of all the different facets of how you can do that and how God wants you to do that. And we in the church today, uh, Mr. Ames and I and the other leaders have always emphasized, and I'm glad we have because it's been dropped by so many other people even in God's church, we've got to emphasize the need to love our neighbor by getting the message of God out to the whole world. That's the greatest single solution there is. This world is coming apart. And most of you know that Netanyahu is going to be meeting with uh, President uh, Obama this week, and Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel, of course, is having to decide whether or when he will have to attack Iran because, as he said on national TV a few months ago, he said, for us it's not a question of maybe something might happen. For us it's a matter of survival. Iran has declared that they're going to wipe us off the map. And we really have no choice if we want to survive. Someone's got to stop Iran. And with Obama new and influenced by all the liberals around him, he may not do anything. He may just sit on his hands and hope for the best. But Netanyahu and the Israelis may not be able to afford to do that. So we may have a lot of action. A lot of things are just on the precipice. We're having a situation in Pakistan and Afghanistan right now where the Taliban are virtually taking over vast sections of of uh, Pakistan and they are very vicious and they if they get in control of all the atomic weapons because Pakistan didn't just invent one weapon all of a sudden they've had weapons now for years we don't know how many atomic weapons probably dozens they may have by now and it would be a terrible thing to have these wild men so to speak in charge of that and a great danger to world peace So India may decide to preemptively attract them. If we don't, it'd be better if the United States would help them. But something is going to have to stop. Something's going to blow up there. And in the meantime, the financial crisis is spreading, and we know that things are going to get a little bit better temporarily. But a lot of the very, very top experts say that it may get better for a little while with all these trillions of dollars work their way through, but then the banks may go down and other things may go down worse than ever later. And because we've got too much uh, corruption, toxic waste, or whatever you want to call it in the system. But we're living in a different era. We have entered a different era, as I said last time. And you young people don't fully understand that. But we are now entering an era that's going to change the face of the United States in a way it has never been changed before. Never, ever, period. We're entering a different time. And our nation will never be the same again but we need to realize that. But we can get sit around and feel sorry for ourselves or get mad at the liberals and the communists and all the other type of people that are beginning to take over and have this big brother society to manage everything that we do. But, or we can just decide to be a Christian and let God take care of it. And we better do the latter. We had better be Christians and have Christ living His life in us. Because that is the only real solution, and we've got to understand that. So I just thought that I would preach today on something that may be one of the most important things uh, in the world, and that is an aspect of love, which is the most important quality, and that is to ask you, are you a giver? Brethren, you and I will not be in the kingdom of God unless we learn to be givers. Frankly, we won't be there. The Bible doesn't say it in so many words, but but indirectly it says that over and over again. God Himself is the greatest giver in all the universe. Mr. Armstrong used to say you cannot outgive God. God gives us life. He gives us breath. He gives us the very mind with which people try to reason around His very existence. And think you've got all this creation, all these beautiful trees and flowers, and you've got to have the you've got to have the uh, butterflies and the flowers, and to produce honey, and you've got to have nectar, and then the, they pollinate uh, the bees themselves by moving around. And you don't know which came first, of course. In a lot of cases, some say, well, yet you get into it. One could not exist without the other. A lot of these things in our interdependent society world, I should say, universe, had to be invented or created, I mean, together at the same time. It demands, this creation demands a Creator. And the scientists aren't willing to admit that, of course, so many of them, because they want to think they're important. And as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8, verse 7, the carnal mind is enmity or hostile against God. For, why? For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. They don't want the kind of God who tells them what to do. The carnal mind rebels against that. And that's a strange thing, but that's the age that we're living in and, of course, the society we're living in and have been living in for 6,000 years as far as humanity is concerned. But we've got to learn to realize that there is a great God and one of His great characteristics, of course, the greatest characteristic, is love and one aspect of that is He is the greatest giver. God said back in John three sixteen through Jesus Christ, God so loved the world that He gave. He gave His only begotten Son to die for us and reconcile us to God that we could have eternal life. God gave. You read back in the book of James, if you would turn there with me now, in James chapter 1. Let's turn at this point, brethren, to James chapter 1. And I'm going to begin reading here in verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Every good gift, every beautiful sunrise, every beautiful sunset, every beautiful piece of music, everything there is is there because God made it Or put within humanity the capacity, of course, to invent or create that beautiful music or whatever it is. Everything that's good and right and clean and beautiful is there because God made it. And so we need to think about it that way. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. God made us in His image. God wants us to learn to be givers like He is a giver Therefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. He says down in verse 26, If anyone amongst you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. So we all need to be careful what we say, every one of us, not to hurt others but to give to others, to help them, to encourage them. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, we often preach about keeping ourselves unspotted from the world and we ought to keep away from too much television or the wrong kind of television or Internet or movies or anything like that because it puts wrong thoughts in our mind. You can just push a button and Satan's world comes right into your living room by the hour. And many people even in the church don't seem to realize that. I know several years ago when I was pastoring a church, I had a first early church way back in San Diego that I raised up and pastored from 1952 to 1960 when I was sent to help start the college in England. But then later I was brought back and pastored a a, a smaller church in uh, Los Angeles. And I had an earlier one, then it was bigger too. But at any rate, I remember that many of the brethren, when we would go visit them... One of our black elders, Mr. Rufus Turner, and I would go together. And then we had a Jewish elder that I also enjoyed going with, uh, Mr. Mordecai Joseph. And when we'd go into people's homes who were had been reading the magazine or taking our correspondence course, or some of them actually were already members, often they would have the television on, and they wouldn't even offer to tell it off, turn it off. Here we were... Not that we were anything, but we were servants of the living God. And they would leave this thing on in the background. And every then, I would just ask them, I said, well, really, I hope you don't mind turning that off. I did it kind of apologetically so they didn't think I was mean or something. But I thought, what is this? Here are the servants of the living God come in their home and they go, blah, 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 blah in the background. They want this image and this noise going on. That's what, I don't know, it's just a strange quirk of the human brain. They weren't able to realize Uh, what is important and what is not important. And we've got to uh, obviously not have the world in our mind. But the main part of this verse is to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. And brethren, often we want to give without realizing it. And I've been that way in the past, not always. And you've been that way in the past, not always. But some of us like to give of ourselves when we can make points. We like to make brownie points, you know. Uh, we like to impress Mr. Armstrong, or some of you would like to impress me, or you'd like to impress Mr. Ames or Dr. O'Neill. You think, well, if I could impress Dr. O'Neill, well, maybe he'd give me make me a deacon or give, make me a big shot. I, I need to impress him. Well, you want to honor him and honor Mr. Ames and honor the other ministers, honor the office, not that we're anything human, humanly, but honor the office, But you'd better try to impress God. And God is not impressed (laughs) unless your attitude is right, if you follow me. He reads the hearts of men. And He says that in quite a number of cases. So if you're visiting those who can't pay you back, if you're helping those who can't pay you back and are trying to help them just as much as the others, I don't mean you should never help anyone that has a nice personality and you could spend more time with people like that or... Or uh, on occasion, I have friends, it's not wrong, or those that have more physical means or seem important for some reason or another, but you don't want to spend all your time with them. I know I used to have uh, my wife, I'd tell her, let's, we have had an interesting people's dinners. I had a big uh, 6,500 square foot mansion, belonged to Ambassador College, not my home, but I got to live there for four years. And I would tell my wife, it would be interesting. And we had, you know, some of you uh, men have heard, and women too, that Bobby Fisher was reckoned the greatest chess champion of all time. And we had him in our home for dinner. And uh, and then he helped my next older son, Jim, gave Jim a little lesson in chess. And uh, for free, I thought, boy, my wife is kind of... A little pushy, asking Bobby Fisher, I noticed he realized he could get five thousand dollars for a lesson for others. I read about that later, but yeah, well okay he 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 was having dinner in my home, and uh whatever, and then we had Dan truett Dan Truett was uh, the one who sang in sound of music, you know you're sixteen and i'm seventeen, and I'll take care of you and We had other interesting people there, and I didn't have always those people but I had more of those people and not enough of just the poor people in the church I should have had more of the poor people in the church that couldn't give back or weren't interesting I wasn't trying to get anything out of the interesting people necessarily because Dan Truett was just a student and he was, he gave up his movie career he was a student in Ambassador College and he didn't have a lot of money but it was interesting he had something interesting in the sense of his, his persona if you know what I mean and at that time he was more famous than he is now So try to have a way of serving no matter who is what. Uh, They may not have anything to give back to you. Maybe they're kind of boring. They may not even have a great deal of personality, but maybe those people need help more than someone who has all this personality and self-confidence. And maybe this tired old man really needs help and encouragement. Think about it. You may need to think about how you can help the old people how you can help the young people how you could give to the poor people how you could give to the rich people and and actually serve them not flatter them but serve them and help them and all kinds of people every human being uh, in god's image and that's what we've got to try to do and follow through here to be willing to serve the orphans and widows and others who may not be able to pay you back so god is the great giver And every good and every perfect gift comes from God. Now, let's turn to Philippians, if you would, chapter 2, in a very familiar passage here, but I certainly don't want to leave it out. Philippians chapter 2, and in verse 4, the apostle Paul was inspired to tell us, Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So you've got to have the interests of others in mind, not just what you want. You don't need to entertain just the Dan Truitts and Bobby Fishers and all the interesting people. <laughs> these other people around, they, need, they have needs. They may have even greater needs than so-called important people. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what was Christ's mind? Who, being in the form of God, he could have thought, boy, I'm above all these other people. They're nothing. And that's true. We're a bunch of little ants down here on earth crawling around in this little ball out in the darkness of space compared to Christ. But that was not his attitude. He thought the Father and I have made them in our image to someday be our sons, to be full sons of God in the very kingdom of God, the government of God on this earth, which is the very family of God, God's family grown great, the very intimate family where we could call God Abba, Father. And we want to relate to them. We want to help them. We want to serve them. We want to give these little ants so someday they can be like us. Christ was so much greater than all of us put together when you think about it. And I know we don't like to think about it that way. Boy, is everybody on earth less important than Christ? Well, Christ could have pushed a button or said a word and He could have said, Well, Father, or just whatever to the powers, let's move the earth you know, five degrees further away from the sun, and we would have all frozen to death. Or five degrees closer, and we'd all burned to death. Would have been very difficult. The power was so different. The power, the everything was so different. But he had this outflowing concern, so being in the form of God. Did not consider himself to be equal with God because he was willing to be humbled, but made himself of no reputation. Or as I've explained, the Greek word there is kenosis. He emptied himself. He gave up the supreme power and glory that He had to become fully human. He was the personality, absolutely the personality who had been God, but translated into the human flesh. He emptied Himself, and taking the form of a bondslave, the Greek word is doulos, meaning a bondslave, and coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself And became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. One of the most slow, agonizing deaths ever invented by perverted humanity under the influence of Satan, the devil. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name, the authority, the title, the opportunity, the office, which is above every name. And it goes on why because he was willing to give he was willing to give himself he was willing to humble himself and that was his approach that is the mind of christ in second peter if you turn there with me second peter now brethren I'll turn if you would to chapter 1 of second peter And it says here in verse 2, "...grace, peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as His divine power has given." What does God give us? "...has given uh, to us all things to pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which, you see, has, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises." These promises are given to us. Great promises that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature. That's one of the greatest promises in all the universe, that we can actually have the very nature of God Himself. We can have His love, His joy, His peace, His faith and confidence, His wisdom and understanding and knowledge, His supreme power, All the aspects of God's character can be ours. Maybe not to the same degree that the Father has them because He will always be the Father. He will always have had more time to mature in a sense and be greater. God shows that. But just like my four sons have come out have the same basic nature that I do and all our children have our nature within them. The good, the bad, and the ugliest, we say. Then it's up to them what they do with it. But... They're fully human, fully human in every way. And we will be fully sons of God. And Jesus will not be way up here then. He will be our elder brother. And Christ does not have brothers who are goats or sheep or dogs or cats by comparison. We will be on the God level of existence because God is reproducing Himself. That is the ultimate mystery of God. When you read that term, I've given whole sermons on that. But the mystery of God involves the resurrection from the dead. But when you get to the ultimate, what does the resurrection of the dead involve? It means born into the very family of God. The mystery that somehow God is reproducing Himself. And the world has never understood that. What an awesome promise that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence. The world says just believe in Jesus and you have nothing else to do. But God says in His Word, giving diligence. Work at it. Add to your faith. You're to have faith, first of all. Know that God is there and He's going to be with you. Add to faith virtue. Virtue is strength of character. And... Mr. Hart was mentioning Mr. Armstrong's book. We can have the understanding and the capacity to know good from evil, to resist the evil and choose the good. So you've got to have strength of character. Knowledge. You can have strength of character and that basic strength, but you need to know specifically how to exercise that character. You have to have the knowledge that comes from the Bible. And then you have to have, add to knowledge, self-control so you want to control yourself and then perseverance so many start out and then give up and quit and I can start listing names which I should not do I've tended to list names too much in the past people I've known because I've been in the church for nearly 60 years and seen you know evangelists come and go and big shots come and go and that's sad and it hurts I don't rejoice over that many of them I really love and still pray for and I think well maybe will they be in the first resurrection I don't know I'm glad that God Understands the hearts of individuals, and he'll have more big mindedness and mercy than maybe we would have. But we'd better hang in there. Perseverance, godliness, we're to be like God, to have a, a sense of holiness, and want to be pure like God is pure. But we can have that oh, I'm just going to love God, and He's way up here, and I just say my prayers, and I'm really good. And then you get upset at some brother next door or in the church somewhere else here who doesn't do something you like. Well, I'm all mad at him. So I'm all pure here with God. God understands me. Yeah, he does understand you. That's part of the problem. (laughs) He knows that in one way you want to be nice and you're willing to love him because he's way up there and he never does anything bad. But you can get your feelings hurt so easily. It's pitiful. And then you hate your neighbor and you can't afford to do that either. So you want to have godliness, but also the next thing, brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness. And part of that would be, of course, to be a giver. And then finally, love. And so they're all overlapping in a sense, but just love is the greatest of all. And if these things are in you and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to have these things. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent. It doesn't say just believe on the Lord and just you just float downstream. Merrily, 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 floating down the stream. No, we don't do that. We've got to pray and study and overcome. We don't have some to have some mental tension and... And work ourselves into a stroke. Don't work yourself into a stroke <laughs> over it. But we do need to be diligent. Faithing, having faith that God will help us. And so you want to be diligent to, to do your part. And uh, be diligent to make your calling and election Sure indicating it might not be sure you're not once saved always saved you've got to do your part you've got to overcome you've got to grow in grace and in knowledge as we explained during the days of unleavened bread first you accept christ and then the days of unleavened picture overcoming sin and putting sin out of your lives which involves growing in grace and in knowledge so be diligent to make your calling and election sure for if you do... Is there something you do? Yes, Peter said so. If you do these things, you will never stumble, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly. Do you earn your salvation? Oh, well, it's not saying that, but there are conditions. That's the way Mr. Armstrong always put it. He had a very good way of putting things. You can't just earn your way into the kingdom by saying, I'm going to do so many spiritual push-ups, and I'm going to pray an hour every day and study an hour a day, and I'm going to be real strict, and so I'll just somehow the time I've gotten up to 500 push-ups a day and whatever I'll just be right in the kingdom no it's not that way so you can say well God I earned my way in you can't do that because your human nature is going to pop up over here and you think you've got it under control over here and it pops up over here and that just happens and I've seen that in my 59 years in God's church I remember I was I thought very close to God in a certain way I was because there's a student way back in Ambassador College that came to us as a terrible diabetic far more than I've ever been but he had it really bad type 1 diabetes and he had always wanted to come to Ambassador College I found out later from his uh, sister Uh, I told this story before I better not repeat the whole thing but anyway God allowed him to die his name was Roy Priest and I fasted three or four days later that God would raise him from the dead I was concerned I'd been the first student to ever die in Ambassador College I was a a minister by then and it just it really hit me he was in my freshman Bible class and it helped me get very close to God and God helped me and strengthened me in many ways after that and I thought well boy I'm really close to God I have a regular steady life here at Ambassador and I had a little apartment and I was there teaching and with students all day and I thought I'm really getting close to God and then I went to Europe which is a wonderful trip with Mr. Armstrong's elder son, Richard David Armstrong. I'd never been to Europe before, and I'll never forget as we headed out New York Harbor, and we we were on the old queen, the big queen Elizabeth, the first queen Elizabeth, the biggest ocean liner ever, and, uh, or at that time at least. But at any rate, I remember uh, the tugboats pulled us out, and just as we were coming by the Statue of Liberty in the fog, where the ship's main engines came on and it just shook the whole ship and then suddenly the big whistle came on and I think tears came to my eyes and I had chills up and down my spine wow we're leaving the United States there goes the Statue of Liberty in the fog so different today you get on a plane and you're just gone and you're there but we were out on the high seas for five solid days and all summer long we saw different things and ate here and there and we didn't get drunk or commit adultery or fornication or anything like that but we were just going and going and seeing things and i began to realize after a while i'm not praying as much i'm not studying as much we're staying in interesting hotel rooms and and there's not a lot of time and we would get up and go the next day and see something else and i begin to repent i thought wow I'm, I'm not as close to god as i thought i was you know god can put you suddenly out of one situation into a different situation And it doesn't mean you've got to pray a full hour every day and study a full hour every day, but you'd better do at least a half hour, and you'd better be close to God and in a spirit of prayer during the day. And when you're seeing, you know, Paris and the Eiffel Tower, and then the next day you're seeing Berlin, and the next day you're seeing uh, whatever around the country, it can get your mind distracted from why you're alive and serving God's people. So whatever it is, it's easy to get distracted and not to be walking with God because the circumstances change and you're not giving and helping people as much so you want to always realize that and not assume you're close to God when you're really not but you've got to do these things then if you do these things to develop that character that's the qualification then God can give you eternal life why doesn't God just give you eternal life any old way why does He want you to be surrendered first? Why does He want you to be a giver first? Well, again, brethren, as I've said, please think about that. God is building a spirit family. Does God want people in the church and finally in His kingdom, in His government, in His family, who are going to say, My feelings are hurt. I'm mad at this guy. Someone did something. And this deacon did something that I wanted to do, and I'm jealous, or I wanted to be the next deacon, or I wanted to be the next elder, or I wanted to be, and, 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 and all this stuff. He can't afford to have people in his family like that for all eternity. It might be creating potential Satans, like Satan the devil, you know, turned aside, or even at a minimum, they would just rub on each other, and eventually they would be miserable, and they would make everyone else miserable for all eternity. For all eternity. So he wants us to love each other, to help each other, to serve each other, to learn to give each other to each other in this life, even though we're not perfect. He wants us to do that to the important people, the unimportant people, and there aren't any unimportant people by the way, in God's side, but the ones that seem to be important the rich and the poor and the old and the young and everybody else. So we've got to have that attitude and uh, and really try our best to be sure that we fulfill the conditions so that God can then give us eternal life in His kingdom. Turn to Acts chapter 20 now, brethren. Let's notice this, and a lot of you know uh, for sure where I'm going now, but it's one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, not the first one I'm reading. Let's go back starting with verse uh, uh, 32. Acts chapter 20, verse 32. He's talking to the Ephesian elders here, Paul is, for the last time perhaps. And he says, Now, brethren, I commend you to, the, to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified, those who are set apart. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. I haven't come here to get from you. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands were provided for my necessities. And for those who were with me, I have shown you in every way. See, Paul didn't have to have any money for television stations and uh, big publishing houses. He just had to take care of himself. If he had enough food to eat and a roof over his head and enough clothes, that's all he needed. Uh, Today, our situation is different because we do have these other expenses. But he just took care of himself sometimes working as a tent maker and then would try to have, no doubt, Bible studies and visits and things at night and preach on the Sabbath. That's all he needed. I have shown you that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. Here are precious words of Christ that are not given us in the Gospels. They're given us later by Paul. He said, It is more blessed to give than to receive and that sounds so simple (laughs) but it's not do you give of yourself do you have outflowing concern every day to love others, to help others to serve them, to enrich their lives to give, to give, to give some of us do it part of the time none of us do it all the time but Jesus Christ of Nazareth apparently did it all the time because he was God in the flesh from the time he got up in the morning, he probably did some things to take care of his own needs. And maybe he maybe he threw some water out of the nearby stream or lake on his face and got awake. And maybe he shaved or partially shaved. He may have had a beard. Brethren, remember now, some people get upset if new people come in. And I've told you it hasn't happened as much as I thought it would. But eventually I think it will. And we may have people coming in here later that will look quite different than we do I don't mean weird but some of them may have beards or dress a little differently or whatever when God begins to call people right out of the world more swiftly if Christ and the apostles would come in here some of us would think boy they look worldly they've got these beards like this guy over here (laughs) (laughs) lucky (laughs) And, and they have these ridiculous looking robes and they don't have a suit and tie on what's wrong with them nothing is wrong with them they're the apostles you see Whatever, So we have to understand that our so-called way of doing things is not necessarily inspired of God as a spiritual thing. It's our custom in our society, and we should go along with it uh, in general as long as it doesn't uh, violate God's laws. But all day long we should try to give to one another what Jesus gives. So He took care of His own needs. But then what did He do? Early in the morning, while it was yet dark... A number of accounts show us, one specifically Mark 135, he went out and prayed. He got out on the hillside and maybe the early morning stars were still up there and he looked up and said, "Father, I'm down here and you're up there. And I need your help. Please be with me, guide me, use me today that I can fulfill my role as the messenger of the new covenant and to set an example and to bring the gospel." and to overcome in the flesh so that I can be a merciful and faithful high priest and finally be the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. He prayed to God every morning. He didn't let anything else get in the way. He got up early and prayed, got his spiritual batteries charged before he went out. And that's not wrong. He had to do that because he was in the flesh Then he began to give and give and give. Now, he didn't need to study the Bible because he was the Bible, in a sense. He was the Word, the logos, who inspired the Bible. So he had that advantage. He didn't have to take an extra 35 or 55 minutes to drink into the Bible. But even he, no doubt, had studied and meditated on God's law as a boy, was taught strictly by his very dedicated parents. And gradually, as we see, even by age 12, his pre-incarnate knowledge begin to come back to him and he realized who he was and when Mary his mother told him there in Luke 1 she said why did you do this to us son we came back to look for you here and you were and so on and he said didn't you know I must be about my father's business he kind of let her know gently he had a different father his father was not just Joseph his real father was God (laughs) So he understood the Bible in a profound way as he grew up, and all his pre-incarnate knowledge came back. But he learned to practice this and showed that through his whole life. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Now, Paul had not been a perfect giver, because no one is perfect but Christ, but he had been a wonderful example overall once he was converted. And he must have loved them, helped them, taken care of them, because when they knelt down and prayed as he left, they all wept freely. They began to cry and hugged him, every one of them, sorrowing most of all for the words that he spoke, that they would see his face no more. So Paul saw them for perhaps the last time, and they loved him because he had been a giver. If you were to die tomorrow, would people remember you and me as a giver? Think about it. We all want to do that better than we have done. We should try to be a giver in every way we can. The God who created us in His image wants us to learn to to live together, to share together, because we're going to have to do that throughout all eternity. All eternity to love, to give, to help, to share with each other in the family of God and be givers. What kind of personalities does God want in His eternal kingdom? In the early years of the church of of this present era, Mr. Armstrong's era, I should say, we did have a great deal of of family atmosphere in the church because we were smaller the Philadelphia was just getting going. And Mr. Ames mentioned the other day in his fine sermon about Mr. and Mrs. Eddie Eckert and how they gave him mercy and how they helped him. And I knew them pretty well because they were even there when I first came in 1949. And they were givers all the way through. They were a of German her- heritage <clears throat> and they were small physically. He was a male nurse. Maybe she was a nurse. I can't remember what she did, but they were always around, helping and giving of themselves to other people continually. And they gave to Mr. Uh, Ames when he was sick and came and helped him and brought him, I guess, hot soup or whatever it was and encouraged him. But I remember when we were, when I was first in college and we had to live in the in Mayfair, uh, the dormitory. The fellows lived on the third floor. And Annie Mann, who was really a, from Nova Scotia, kind of a tough old gal who was the—I um, uh, forget what her title was. She was kind of the governess. She was the boss of Mayfair. And, of course, she was older than my mother, so she she told us what for. And she was tough on the outside, but but uh, very loving on the inside when you got to know her. Asked Mrs. The party, and got to know her pretty well, I'm sure. I remember once it kind of embarrassed Mrs. Man this was when I was a senior already I think and she fainted because she was getting older and I just picked her up and carried her up two flights of stairs and here one of her students was carrying her but she 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 had some problem but we all loved her because she was very kind even though she had she'd bark at us she'd say you boys stay don't you go up that stairway we weren't supposed to go up the stairway that led to the second floor because that's where the girls lived they had a, a, a separate stairway that was blocked off, so the fellows were to go up that stairway up to the third floor, and that's where we lived up there. So she didn't want us to go where the girls lived, and uh, but she was very nice. But she was a giver too. But uh, anyway, we had this whole atmosphere where people were helping and giving. But we lived in the we lived there, but we ate in the basement. And Annie, man, the only girl in college for the first three years was Betty Bates. And Betty lived right with Mrs. Mann, so she was well protected from all of us <laughs> evil guys and she lived right with Mrs. Mann in an apartment on the first floor in those days. But anyway, uh, uh the fellows all ate in the in the basement. There was a room that later became the office for Herman Hay and me and uh old rickety furniture and we ate down there and uh Herman Hay and and uh, Ken Herman and Raymond McNair and Ray- and Marion McNair and Paul Smith and Owen Smith and one or two others of us would eat down there the McNair boys grew up on a farm and they would they would bring they would buy whole sacks of wheat we were all poor i was embarrassed i didn't want to call my mother and ask for money i thought well they didn't want me to be there in the first place so i never did that and uh, but we got by the McNairs would share their whole wheat, they had whole wheat every day. <laughs> and uh, and then Mr. and Mrs. Eckert would bring us food regularly, they would often bring us food two or three times a week. They'd come over with various foods to help us out. And Mrs. Mann would sometimes bring us some food, and uh, Mrs. Lisman there was an older Dr. and Mrs. Lisman, and different ones would bring us food and uh, help us. And we would get by, and Herman Hayes' mother. Would send down uh rich turkey eggs and rich cheese, Herman Hay liked really foul cheese, you know strong <laughs> cheese, <laughs> but she'd send down foul cheese and good cheese too, and that was uh, that was good for us, so we made out, but people through the whole church were trying to help us and give us, and there was an atmosphere of being a family, a family we had to sort of make do. Uh, some of us had come from a place my parents were not wealthy but they were okay they could have helped but uh, I never did ask them the only one that sent me money in college was my old Methodist grandmother and three or four times a year she uh, would send me two or three dollars just dollar bills of course to her that was a lot of money and even when I was in college that wasn't very much money but it still looked pretty good (laughs) back in 1950 or 51 or whatever and she would send me a little bit of money and that would that would help out because the haircut was just 25 cents or 50 cents and you could get a hamburger for 15 or 25 cents back then and things were different. But anyway, we developed that and people were trying to help each other and then we had a lot of givers back then. And uh, one great giver that I've mentioned before was named Bill Hamburger. He was an old bachelor. He wasn't that old. I think he was just in his 40s when he first came out, but he only had a sixth grade education and some of his teeth were missing because he'd had to be a bachelor and get by and probably didn't eat the right thing until he was converted. He he sold his his, uh, his chicken ranch or whatever back in Texas and came out to Ambassador College and gave himself He gave his time, his strength, his energy. He gave his truck. Us guys helped tear up his truck. He let us use his truck to help all over the campus. So we didn't purposely tear up his truck, but none of us were perfect drivers, I'm sure. (laughs) And uh, so he just gave everything he had. And it was years, even after I graduated. And someone mentioned to Mr. Armstrong that somehow they found out that bill had run out of money. And all these years, he hadn't had a salary at all and Mr. Arm he used up all of his savings. He gave his life savings. he gave quite a bit of money when he first came money then from selling his his uh, farm back east and uh in in Texas. but at any rate, Mr. Arm said, "Oh my, he hadn't actually thought about it It had been so many years, so he gave Bill a modest salary, but Bill was helping people all the time. He would help us fellows by encouraging us. Once in a while, he, uh, a p- person would come by. Uh, some of them were oddballs, but he didn't care. They were human beings interested in the work, and they'd find out where the work was, and they'd come by. And uh, bachelors and Bill would let them stay in his room. He just had one room in the second floor there of of the later the, what became the library, but the college building, we called it. And his room was right next to the bathroom, so he had to go out and around, and no one was there that early in the morning. But anyway, he would let people stay with him, take them in, take care of them, feed them, never ask for anything. He was just giving and helping all the time. A constant giver. And some of us evangelists talked one time, and I told you this, but I, it's good that I repeat it. You might have forgotten. Several of us, we were evangelists. I remember the the ones who did this, four or five of us. And we got to talking about Bill Hamburger after his death. I think Mr. Apartheon may have been there. But I know he was there at his death. But whether he was in that conversation, I can't remember. But we were saying, do you think Bill Humberger will have a greater reward in God's kingdom than some of us? And all of us agreed that that would undoubtedly be the case because he was giving and giving and giving where some of the ministers, some were really deeply converted and tried to give, but others were, they were just wanting to be impressive, you know, and make points and be a big shot and so on. God looks on the heart. That's the thing. God looks on the heart when you give. Do it because you love God. You worship God. You love these human beings because they're made in God's image. And you want to give to them whether you make any brownie points with anyone or not. You do it even when other people don't know about it. You're giving. You're helping. You're serving. Not trying to climb the rat ladder uh, of success, so to speak, in the church by showing how, how great you are but because you have outflowing concern. And that's something we all have to build because our human nature is to want others to know about it. You know, the great big uh, foundations we have do a certain amount of good, but frankly, I won't go into the detail, but some of them do an awful lot of harm. They're in terrible, terrible, super liberal activities today. The Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Walter Annenberg Foundation. I got to have lunch at his ambassador's residence one time, and I think he'd be shocked if he saw the way his money was being used today. But at any rate, rather than quietly giving to people, they put it in a foundation with their name on it, because they want, this has come from the Ford family, this has come from the Rocker family, this has come from the Bill and Belinda Gates Foundation. Do you follow me? They all sort of want to somehow achieve uh, prestige in that way and before men. Does that achieve any prestige before God? No. He says, give quietly. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand does. Now, that doesn't mean you have to hide it. When I fast occasionally, and I don't fast as much as I should, but I sometimes will tell two people and that's all. I'll tell my wife because she kind of needs to know if I'm going to eat or not or if I'm sick so she doesn't worry. And I'll often tell Monica because Monica will fix me uh tea after my nap or well, certain things she does that she kind of needs to know if I disappear during the noon hour that I'm not sick I've gone home and normally take the rest of the day just to study and pray so I don't take the whole day to fast I mean uh, off but I try to have extra study and prayer that morning and then come to work for three or four hours then disappear in the afternoon but I don't need to wave a flag say I'm fasting how holy I am you know and God doesn't want us to do it with that attitude in mind so we've got to be careful to do it for the right reason that doesn't mean we try to hide it's not wrong if people occasionally realize you're praying or have prayed or you have fasted but you're not to go around trying to wave a banner just to show yourself off that's the point you want to do it for the right reason I've told you before about how I met my beautiful wife I was sent up to Bakersfield by Pasadena headquarters. I was not over the ministry at that time, but I was a, I forget what they called it, senior pastor. And I had five or six small churches that kind of indirectly watched over. And one of them was Bakersfield. And they said that there's a, a feud up there between the deacons. And the deacons are all really upset. Well, I thought it was because of a certain sinful thing going on down in Pasadena. I thought these guys had found out and they were upset at that. But I found out, no, that wasn't it at all. And they were fighting one another over power. And uh, the older deacon, one of them was named George, and he was exalting himself and kind of working the minister, so he got to do this and that more, and the others were being sort of pushed aside because this one pushy deacon was making sure he was in control of everything, and the other deacons were all upset because they didn't have power and they didn't have recognition and uh, out of 5 of them uh 3 had already left and uh and then one was on the way out and uh then i i anyway i went up there to help solve that problem while i was up there uh A gorgeous creature came up to me after my sermon (laughs) and I ended up marrying her. And so God, I I felt I had to obey James at that point and, and visit the widows, you see. So I began to visit the widow. I would visit these guys too, but I always would stay an extra day or so so I could also visit not widows, but widow in this case. But anyhow, so I had Evil motives beside, beside just the solving the problem. So I took more time solving the problem than I had to. But at any rate, <laughs> I went to Bakersfield quite often. And, uh, but anyway, better not get off on that. <laughs> but the deacons were fighting each other. They were jealous of one another. And I think my wife remembered me giving this sermon up there one time. I said, Look, brethren, here we are, a little tiny church meeting in this little woman's club about a hundred it was just a hundred and twenty or thirty people you know not even as many as we have here today and the great big semis are roaring up and down highway ninety nine and later highway five out there but and and big cars and thousands of them are going back and forth going back and forth they don't even know we're here and most of the people in Bakersfield they don't know that we're here and we have a bunch of little old ladies and young couples with swallowing kids and you guys are fighting for power what is this power you're fighting over? You remember that? I tried to tell them, What is this power you're fighting about? Somehow, they thought if they could be more important in that little tiny church in Bakersfield, California, that they would... I guess they thought that would make them important. But God looks down from heaven and just shakes His head. Sometimes, I'm sure, thinking, These people are fighting for power here on this earth. And yet, the way we have the ultimate power of becoming full sons of the great Creator who made the entire cosmos and whose voice rolls across like rolling thunder and shakes the heavens and the earth and He'll shake every mountain and every island out of His place in a few years. That kind of power. But we want to fight over little jobs in the church and who's important and who's not important or whatever. Get over it! <laughs> we've all got to get over it. And we've got to learn to give and help and serve for the right reason so I hope we can all understand that and not have jealousy and competition sometimes the older deacons or ministers in the past have tried to hold down the newer ones that's the way this George was doing and that's not right either we need to let the younger guys come along I'm trying to have our what you've seen younger men get up here like Mr. Hart and uh, others who are younger and have opportunities to speak Uh, Michael DeSimone and others and one that's not so young but gives excellent sermon ads he's newer with us although he's been in the church a long time Mr. Crespo so he's not as young physically I guess but anyway we have many newer speakers we want to have newer ones and and have them have an opportunity too that doesn't take away from some of the older deacons or older ministers but we want to have it spread it out you know spread it around bring everyone into the picture and we'll develop, be developing a greater cross section of the church, and then God may use some of them more than in the in the future if we give them an opportunity to serve. I used to tell the guys, "Don't worry about training your strong men in the church." Uh, you know, some of the young ministers would be afraid of capable men coming along, and there'd be a sense of competition. But I'd say I have had to train several of my bosses. I really did. I trained Garner Ted Armstrong. People said you taught Ted? Yes, I did. I taught him about two or three weeks just at the end of his freshman class when I was brought back down from, from uh, uh, Portland because of a student problem, uh, it had nothing to do with Ted. And then I taught him the, the second year Bible, and I taught him the whole year in the epistles of Paul, and then I taught Ted Armstrong in advanced public speaking and homiletics. You taught Ted to speak? No, not really. He already had a wonderful voice and personality like his father. But Ted thanked me four or five times for the lecture I used to give. He used to take three full periods to give it on the preparation and organization of sermons and how you think through what you want to do and research for it and narrow it down and all the steps you should take. And Ted tended to just throw things together and do it real quick. And when he followed that pattern, he said he always had a better sermon which he did. So I helped him in some of those ways. But at any rate, he had a magnificent voice and personality, of course, on his own. But I, he later became my boss. And later, uh, at various other ones I helped talk, became my boss indirectly for a while. Wayne Cole and was over the ministry, and David Anding was over the ministry, and Ron Dart was over the ministry. And I was technically under them for a while. And, and uh, Al Pertune became acting executive vice president for a while and i taught him freshman bible and i guess epistles of paul and several others i helped train my bosses (laughs) and and i had to realize that i may train this guy in another three or four years he may be my boss but it worked out and uh, i learned from them and they learned from me and uh, so on but anyway don't be jealous of bringing others along. Any of you in any situation, let the younger folks have their chance to learn and to grow. Turn back to Jeremiah 17. You see God wants us to have the right motive when we give and help and serve. The right motive. Turn back to Jeremiah chapter 17 in verse 9. God says through Jeremiah, "The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked." Who can know it? I, the Eternal, search the hearts. See, He knows what's in our hearts. He knows the attitude we have and why we're doing this. I test the mind. God is testing our minds and seeing, do we really want to serve Him, or are we just trying to make points with people, or what is our motive, our real motive? Even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. I've told you the story before after things began to come apart in worldwide and I was put way down and I don't mean to talk i feeling sorry for myself others were put down too Mr. Apartheid was put down and taken out of the French work for a little while by political maneuverings of certain people and and uh, Dr. Hay was put down and Raymond McNair and I was and uh Two or three, it wasn't just one, but two or three fellows were there uh, who were ministers, and they were in on a refresher or, or something, and they had been my students, and they liked me. They were trying to be helpful, and they said, Well, Mr. Meredith, you've got to do the things that please the fourth floor. The fourth floor was the top floor of the Hall of Administration. That's where Mr. Armstrong had his office, and Ted and Stanley Rader had his office. The fourth floor And right then, I thought I did have the right answer. I didn't always, but right away, I thought, yeah, the fourth floor, way above the fourth floor is the creator of the universe. That's where I'd better be looking, not to the fourth floor. And, of course, that was correct. I needed to respect those in the fourth floor, be it Ted or Stan Rader or whoever, but I didn't need to kowtow them or please them in a wrong way. So you should always respect those in the church even though they're not perfect, but you try to please God from the heart, not just please, you know, the fourth floor, so to speak. So God searches the hearts, and we've got to try to do whatever we do with the right motives. Mr., well, the present managing editor of of Newsweek magazine wrote this book before he became managing editor. His name is John Meakin, uh, and uh, or Mecham, anyway, M-E-A-C-H-A-N, or M. But uh, it's called Franklin and Winston. And my wife gave it to me uh, a year or so ago, two years. Anyway, I've read it very carefully because I love to read about some of these leaders. You learn lessons from them. But uh, I've read many books about Churchill, as you know, and some about Franklin Roosevelt. But it showed the relationship between these two and helped that relationship, helped us survive, help Western civilization survive against Hitler because he was marching across the world. And they had to stop him. And so they realized they had to work together. But many people have said Sir Winston Churchill was the man of the century. And in a human historical sense, he probably was. He had a more remarkable capacity for leadership and inspiring leadership and speeches than any man in modern times... And Roosevelt was not far behind. As John Kennedy, President Kennedy, said later, Winston Churchill mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. And you know all the statements he made uh, about them were just magnificent statements. Never, 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 never give up, and so on. And he said, we shall fight them in the air. We shall fight them in the sea. We shall fight them in the landing fields. fields. We shall fight them in the fields. We shall fight them in the city. And if by however he put that as an accident they they will uh, take over our island, then uh the our our friends across the sea in the new world and the rest of our empire will come together, and we will be rescued. <laughs> you know he said it in a certain way, a majestic way of saying things, but was he perfect? no, when you read about it uh uh, you, you understand that he was a wonderful man and I, I admire him I like to quote him and use his strengths of, of, of speech and, and tenacity and courage but of course he wasn't called by God he wasn't even sure that God existed and the more I read about it the more I realized that he talked about God but all politicians talk about God once in a while if they want to get elected if you follow me and they don't always really believe in God the way we do at all And uh, but at any rate he he did things uh, one of his uh, contemporaries uh, said he wrote his autobiography they said uh, Winston's autobiography is cleverly disguised as the history of the universe <laughs> in other words the whole universe revolved around Winston if you see what I mean and then uh, of course uh, another one said uh, Winston's tastes are very simple he requires only the very best <laughs> and uh, he always made sure you know so he was human So, these people, who's going to have the greater reward in the first resurrection? Winston Churchill, uh, or the man they call the man of the century, or Time magazine, said later it was Albert Einstein. Well, Einstein was brilliant, and he invented a lot of things and discovered a lot of principles that have helped our whole modern society move forward. But he was also the the grandfather, not father, but the grandfather of the atomic bomb. <laughs> oh, <laughs> is he? No, none of those guys will even be in the first resurrection, probably, as far as we can know. They won't even be there. Bill Hamburger will have a much greater reward, even though he did not have their capacity. He had the capacity to give, to help, to serve. And he really was a very nice person just all day long, giving, helping, serving. And so was Mrs. Mann. And I've told you the story about Mrs. Close Shipard up in Oregon, who was in my first pastorate. She was a, a deaconess up there. And she gave all the time, and she was constantly going. She, if she'd find out if some woman in the church uh, was pregnant or had a new baby, and she'd go there and bring them food and help the woman and take care of her or whatever. She very zealous. Her husband was in the church, but she was much stronger than he was spiritually. And... uh She would always encourage people. She would write them notes and give them calls. And when I came up there as a young bachelor, I got kind of lonesome because I'd always been around the college or even on the summer tours. I'd been with another fellow and with people. Suddenly, I was all alone. And uh, Dr. Winnell wrote this book, uh, this article, In the Mists of Ireland. Well, I was in the mists of, of the Northwest in Portland and up in Seattle. And I was lonesome. And I think she sensed that. She was... Uh, of course not anywhere near my age she was older than my mother but very nice lady and she would write me a note every single week about how wonderful my sermon was well I I'm, I'm not a genius but I, I figured out real quick she was just a mother she was trying to encourage me I, my sermon was not so great I knew that but here's this older woman telling me she really thought it was great and so that was encouraging and then she would uh, occasionally give me some food or help out in various other ways or give me a call and then one time she uh, asked me at church or sent me a note I think she asked me said well I know you're a bachelor and you bachelors don't take care just the way a woman would you know and you probably need a woman to come in and clean your apartment and say oh no I'm just fine well uh, she, a few days later I didn't ask her but she just showed up she and this other woman showed up and they had a pail and and, and and brushes and all kinds of stuff sprooms and mops and oh I thought well okay I let them in and they found dust where I didn't even know dust existed <laughs> it was all over <laughs> and they cleaned up my apartment but she was always helping people not just the minister She, I, I knew that helping people all through the church well I'm sure she'll have a very fine reward so there are a lot of ways you can help people in the church welcome new people give to them encourage them, call them on the telephone, write them notes, have them over to your house and bring some food. I remember the senior piles used to have a bunch of people almost every Saturday night. And sometimes the Sidney Hegbolt, you know, Mr. Hegbolt was with us in our church till he died, and he and his wife. And there's a whole group of people like that down in South Pasadena. It was cheaper down there to live. And they they would have these uh, Saturday night barbecues and us students would go down and, other people in the church and they would so you didn't have to go to an expensive restaurant they would, they would have different ones that get together at each other's homes and have chicken and and uh, salad and potato salad and love they had love and warmth and fellowship and that was really wonderful for a lot of us who were younger and by ourselves so there was that atmosphere to a great extent back in Luke chapter uh, 14 brethren Luke Uh, chapter 14 remember what jesus said he said in verse 13 but when you give a feast if you're going to have a big dinner do you always invite the interesting people like i did for a while no he said invite the poor the maimed the lame the blind now, everybody doesn't have to be blind or crippled for you to invite, but you don't have to always invite the important people. Now, you don't have to neglect them. There are times you might want to invite some of the leaders in the church and get acquainted with them and learn from them, and that's good too, but get but be balanced in it. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You will be repaid. If you learn to give and give even to the little people. So, brethren, let's strive to be genuine givers. And we want to help people. Some of you are good at helping people fix up their homes, mow their lawns, do chores. And we have young men that come out and help people move from one place to the other. I know they helped Dr. Scott Winnale recently move in, a number of you. And that's wonderful. You want to do that. Learn to be hospitable have people in your home or take them out if you can or whatever and give them sometimes food. Give them money sometimes. If you sense they're out of work, we're going to have people out of work and really in trouble. And don't anyone take advantage of that, but within wisdom, try to help people that are like that. If they're out of work, we're going to have more and more of that happen over the next few years and we've got to be givers. Time. Give of your time to help them, encourage them. And give them inspiration. And I remember lots of people did me that way through the years. And I'm very grateful. What kind of church are we? Brethren, I've encouraged you, and I'm not sorry, to try to really concentrate on getting the gospel out. Have your heart in the work and give your tithes and give generous offerings according to your means. Paul said that those who are giving, let him do it liberally back in Romans chapter 12, and give liberally according to your means. But on the other hand, you don't earn your way into salvation just by that one thing at all. You've got to try to be a giver in your personality, in the way you reach out to every part of the congregation, and the way you reach out to people all over. As I've said, we don't concentrate on sending. Thousands or millions of dollars down to Africa or out to Asia to help the starving Chinese or people in India or Bangladesh or people. I used to put half my offerings in the in the uh, envelope for the missionary work. We had the, we kept talking about the starving Chinese, <laughs> and found out later the Chinese just gave up their Christianity, real went and went whole hog in the Communist Party when they it Was you know when they came in, they weren't converted at all, of course, but. God is not calling them. Jesus never sent money. You don't find that or Paul way off to some people you never heard of. Try to help those that you know are around. You're not responsible for elsewhere necessarily. If they're in the church, we have brethren ourselves though that are out in Asia or here or there. So we can't spend our money pouring If we took half the money that comes to us and sent it all to the people in India, it could all be used up down the city of Calcutta alone. Just in a few days, it'd all be gone, or maybe a few hours, frankly, and it wouldn't do any real good because their whole way of life is the same. But give to people that are called. Do good to all men, Paul said, especially to those of the household of faith. So you want to learn that. What kind of church are we? We don't want to concentrate just on doing the work We want to do that, but learn to be givers. If God sees His love flowing through us in that way, we will be blessed. We want to give our personality, our outflowing concern to all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. Turn back to John 7, if you would, at this point. John chapter 7, and beginning here in verse 37 talking about the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day afterward. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, We need to try to think about that and meditate on that individually. And as a church, As God, Holy Spirit flow into you and out from you in love, in kindness, and warmth? Develop your gift of giving. Some people can give a great deal in their personality. Bill Humberger didn't have that kind of personality. He was just constantly serving. But some people have a lot of personal charm. They have warmth. I really enjoy being around certain people more than others. Uh, one more, most interesting person we've had a lot back in worldwide that turned, some turned out to be carnal, but I remember just thinking about one we have, his name, uh, our minister, Bob League. Some of you know Bob League, and he could tell the most interesting stories in the most interesting ways. He just gives and gives and it's, it makes people happy in that way. So if you have that, give your personality. But also the attitude, the kindness, the warmth that you show a genuine spirit of service. I love you. I want to help you. They'll feel that. They'll know whether it's real or not and show them and try to inspire them. Talk to them quietly. Encourage people. They need encouraged. Give them. Give them in all those ways with God's Spirit flowing into you and out from you like rivers of living water. Going back to my favorite scripture Galatians 2.20 I'm crucified with Christ, Paul wrote. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live with the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. If Christ lives in you, He had that outflowing concern and helping, giving, serving, healing, encouraging, teaching, blessing all day long. And you want to have that in you. Turn in now to First John, if you would, at this point. First John, just before the book of Jude and Revelation. First John, chapter two, and verse twenty-four. The apostle John, the beloved apostle. I'd like to read you the whole book. It is one of my favorite books, but we don't have time. Therefore, he said, verse twenty-four, First John two twenty-four. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. Think of all the teachings and examples of Jesus. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you see, if that's part of your very nature, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. You'll be walking with God. And this is the promise that He has promised us, eternal life. These things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing, you see, the Holy Spirit will keep you from being deceived. Verse 28, And now, little children, abide in Him, that when He appears, talking about Christ, obviously, the mind of the Spirit, when He appears, we abide in Christ, have Christ living in you, Christ lives in me, that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. If we have Christ living in us, and if we have honestly in our hearts sincerely been trying to give and help and serve not just make brownie points not to show off to the ministers in a wrong way or anything else not to compete with the other deacons to compete with the other brethren but to help to give to serve to lay down our lives for one another then we can have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming because he is coming soon